Welcome to Innovation Matters, the podcast about sustainable innovation brought to you by Lux Research. I'm Anthony Schiavo. I'm your host. I'm joined as ever by my co-hosts, uh, Kartik Sobramian and Mike Holman. And I'm excited to announce that we've developed a technology to unilaterally destroy all other podcasts on uh, sustainable innovation via sort of a large-scale particle accelerator. We can we can shoot particles through the earth and, and defuse any podcast before it's produced. So really excited to uh, corner the market on on sustainable innovation podcasts going forward. Possibly we're, we're going to corner the market on all podcasts going forward. So yeah, that's uh, it's really exciting. Uh, Mike, I'm, I'm really pleased the, the work you've been doing has paid off. And, <laughs> um, <laughs> there was this paper, it's a 2003 paper that uh, kind of went viral last week on this concept of using particle accelerators to, to destroy nuclear weapons. But you need a um, thousand kilometer long particle accelerator and uh, uh, a couple other things to make it work. So F- 50 gigawatts worth of power as well. As yeah, that's actually it. already the amount of power we use to uh, to produce this podcast. So that, that part's <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> How's it going, fellas? Kartik, uh, I know you uh, received a significant shock last week. How how are you processing the the Lewis Hamilton news? So I was shocked when my uh, when my friend sent me the message. He was like, "Yeah, Lewis Hamilton joined Ferrari." I was like, "What?" <laughs> and uh, but it's only next year though, because everyone thought it was going to be for this year. But he's actually joining next year. Uh, I feel sorry for the other Ferrari driver. Yeah, it's going to be a tense uh, tense year in the uh, who is he with currently? Uh, Mercedes. Mercedes. Little, little tense in the Mercedes uh, race channels, you know, for this year, right? But uh, it just shows that, you know, Mercedes don't have a good car probably for this year, which is, I think, what Mercedes fans would be shocked about. Uh, I support Max Verstappen, so it's uh, immaterial to me. It was, uh, shook the world nonetheless. <laughs> Teasing the podcast for next week, probably. I, I do have a, a demo booked for the Apple Vision Pro. The the Vision Pro episode. <laughs> we'll report back on that to the uh, to the podcast audience next week, I guess. Yeah, we're gonna be doing um, we're gonna be doing this podcast via the what is the the thing called where you see the face? Ah, uh, it's called the persona. The persona. We're gonna be doing the persona podcast. Uh, it's gonna be great. We're pivoting to that in addition to pivoting to F one content. <laughs> um, <laughs> but we actually we we did have some some news we want to talk about. Mike, you were sharing around these slides from Nat Bullard, who's an independent journalist really focusing on climate tech. And there's some interesting stuff in there you wanted to flag up. Yeah. So he puts out this uh, this presentation on on decarbonization every year. It's 200 slides. So the, and there's actually a lot of really interesting nuggets and things in there, um, you know, on everything from supply to, to critical minerals to ES, e, e, uh, the ESG backlash and all, all that sort of stuff that is... Uh, so it's pretty comprehensive. It's definitely worth a, worth a look through. I think one of the things that... Um, that caught my eye that we were we were chatting about earlier is um, looking at the venture funding in or tech investing as he puts it in in Europe and the the carbon and energy category is now actually the largest uh, climate tech essentially is now the largest um, sector for for venture investment in Europe essentially ahead of software ahead of healthcare biotech ahead of 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 finance fintech uh, stuff, which is a you know a big change and a big contrast from what you see elsewhere in the world. Yeah, it's a big change, even from a few years ago, right? Like uh, this upsurge in climate tech funding has been pretty significant. You know, it's not like it's grown steadily over the years. It's just in yeah, the last it's just few like years. all in the last two years, basically. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. Like 
as much as I'm a Europe hater and I've, I've <laughs> made enemies with like the people of the fine city of Brussels or whatever in the course of doing this podcast, we did an event in Amsterdam last year and I talked about how I could really see the European chemicals industry and the European sustainability industry a bit more broadly as being resurgent, right? And I think there's a sense that European industry has been maybe stagnating. You know, you look at in 2000, Europe was like a net exporter of chemicals, right? And today it's like a net importer by a significant margin, right? But what it's always done well is some of the higher tech stuff, you know, the flavors, fragrances, healthcare. You have this very significant center for um, clean tech innovation, right? Europe could really be the technology exporter for, you know, this a lot of different industries in, in kind of the same way that the Silicon Valley is like this this hub and this sort of exporter of technology innovation globally today, right? And just in general, right? I think people sleep on Europe a little bit too much. Again, like <laughs> probably this is at least I have contributed to this in some way, but like the kind of Airbus news of the uh excuse me, not Airbus, but um the Boeing news recently where like doors are just flying off and, you know, you compare that to Airbus, their plane caught on fire and everyone survived, right? It's basically as catastrophic of an incident as you can imagine. Um, I don't know, man, Europe's got the juice. Yeah. I mean, the Airbus Boeing one is an interesting, uh, is an interesting case because it, it really has, I don't have the, the stats in front of me, but I was listening to a podcast about this a couple of weeks ago and, you know, Airbus is really, you know, from kind of Boeing being a clear number one, like Airbus is really pulled ahead there. And there's, um, yeah, there's a lot of, obviously a lot of investment and a lot of interesting and, and valuable stuff there. I guess the question is more, you know, as a technology exporter, that makes sense, but you know, this has happened before, right? With the whole thing with solar, right? And in, in back in, you know, 2007, 2006, when we, we first started covering this stuff at Lux, the, the center of the solar industry was in Germany, right? That's where the most installations were happening. That's where a large amount of the, the manufacturing was, was taking place as well. And then, you know, China totally ate their, their lunch, both in, you know, both in manufacturing and in, uh, and in installations. And uh, I'm not sure that Germany retains that much of the, uh, the benefit from the, the investments that they, that they, they made in, in, you know, kicking off the, the solar industry and, and, uh, and building a lot of that, that domestic capacity there. I'm not surprised by this. And, and the reason I say that is because when I was at the conference in Brussels, sorry, Mike, uh, sorry, Anthony, I mean, uh, it's a, still a nice city. I was at Brussels. The general consensus that I always feel when I talk to people representing European organizations uh, in, in general is that Europe always wants to be the torchbearer of the energy transition. So they want to be the one that lead innovation, that show the world how innovation is meant to be done. I'm not surprised to see climate tech, which is the need of the hour is what's getting the most interest in Europe. And I expect this trend to continue. Perhaps with chemicals or specific industries, I don't know which ones, but I think they're going to pour in a lot of money for R&D in general across various sectors related to climate tech. Mike, you brought up the solar example. I think we see today that governments are a lot more proactive in funding the development of the technologies, but also funding the scale up of the technologies. In America, we have the IRA. Even in Europe, we have a more intensive industrial policy, right? And it looks like that policy is going to continue to intensify. Is it a different situation compared to, you know, a decade ago or two decades ago with solar, where you had, of course, I think economic advantages, you know, in the Chinese low-cost labor, but also a lot of pretty strong, like, 
subsidies, right? There's a government policy element to what uh, the Chinese government did with solar, right? Yeah. Do you think that that playing field is is more leveled now, and you know maybe the technologies are going to have a better chance of staying in Europe, or do you think that it's going to have a similar similar experience? I think there's potential for it to be uh, to be different this time round, right? Because I think you know, one of the dynamics with solar is it was really the reason that the idea of being a technology exporter didn't didn't work there is it was really, you know, pretty conventional technology, right? Silicon solar panels have been around for a long time. And I think the sort of stuff that's being developed in Europe now is more novel and 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 kind of cutting edge. It's not as much just a matter of of scale up. You know, and it, 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 and the sort of thing that one of the big things was was thin film solar, right? There were all these companies, a lot of them in Germany, were developing novel thin film technologies, SIGs and and Morpha Silicon, Cantel, and all these all these sort of technologies. Um, and if those had panned out and had proved to be the future of solar, then I do think you know Germany and Europe would have been in a would have been in a stronger position to uh, to benefit from them. You know, in the event they all kind of got crushed by the incumbent technology because just because the, the the silicon approach got so cheap and and a lot of the you know the thin film things didn't didn't work out but uh i think if i do think we are to to kind of get to this next stage of the energy transition it i think it is clearly going to require more novel technology and and not just scale up of of you know things that we we know pretty well already. So I do think that that presents a, a better opportunity, but it will depend on the industrial policy, I think for sure. Speaking of industrial policy and Germany, <laughs> Germany, very notable for its uh, policy of shutting down nuclear reactors, right? Despite the fact that it's in an energy crisis and also it's going to replace them with coal. And I think that, you know, this kind of is very emblematic of where we're at with nuclear, which is we're still fighting a lot of the same battles. I was reading this book from like 2012 about clean tech in general. It's kind of this uh, written by this crank, but like, you know, a lot of the complaints he makes about nuclear in, in, in the book are still pretty valid, right? Issues of proliferation, issues of uh, criticality, right? And Kartik, you flagged up an interesting startup that you wanted to discuss operating in the nuclear space. What's this company, and um, what are we uh, what are we doing here in this in this space? This company is not German; they are Swiss. But uh, they recently raised twenty million dollars for um, what they call as a transmutation reactor, or that kind of a concept. What they do is the reactor is subcritical. So, for listeners who don't know what criticality means, uh, criticality is when a, a nuclear reactor can sustain its reaction. So you don't need any external inputs, but they make it subcritical. So you have an external neutron source that keeps powering this reactor, which is of course much safer because without this external source, the reaction can't continue. So you shut down this external source, uh, for instance, a particle accelerator, not as uh, long as 1000 kilometers, uh, but something much smaller, <laughs> uh, but still enough to keep that reaction going. Uh, so it's a safer reactor. And Again, as you mentioned, Anthony, one of the biggest concerns of nuclear is always proliferation, right? So uh, you think about uranium, you can use uranium to make plutonium. Plutonium is used in bombs. People don't like that. And it's very hard to sort of separate nuclear energy program and nuclear weapons programs. It's it's always very mm -hmm. difficult, as you say. So what these guys propose is that they would use thorium instead. So oh, with thorium, you can reactor. breed. 
Yes, so they are a thorium reactor and they're going to use lead bismuth cooling. Uh, they haven't released so much information on size and things like that, but it's just that they're a subcritical reactor. So that's their big differentiator. I feel like people my age, which, you know, podcast listeners, you can just sort of guess whatever makes you feel comfortable. People my age, like when I was 16, I was doing a lot of reading online about thorium reactors. And there was like a lot of, it was kind of this, and like in college as well, it was like this kind of like 18-year-old engineers, 16-year-old aspiring engineers all got really into like thorium through like very early YouTube videos and like online discussions and stuff like that. So I, I didn't realize this is thorium because, you know, I think when you think about conventional nuclear, to me, a lot of the risks are overblown, right? A lot of the complaints are are pretty misplaced and pretty bad faith. But nuclear proliferation is distinctly not <laughs> one of those. I think it's pretty legit. And, you know, the reality is nuclear waste is certainly a, a vector for proliferation. So it's not just about, you know, the, the fuels up front. It's also about the waste um, at the back end, right? So this this is actually more valuable than I realized when when you first told me about it. Any type of of you know non self sustaining nuclear reaction that's going to be less energy efficient, right? You're producing less energy overall. Do you see that as an issue? It's got to be a lot of capex too, right? Like how what what do you think is this viable? I mean, in terms of capex, generally speaking, nuclear is very expensive. So I think when you talk about it, I don't think CapEx is going to be the bigger argument here. Like how much more expensive is it going to be? I really don't think so much. I'm not familiar with particle accelerator costs. Uh, but, uh, you know, as Mike mentioned in the in the paper that recently went viral, you know, if you're going to spend $50 billion on just the particle accelerator, then, <laughs> you know, then we can throw that idea completely out of the window. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at the diagram on their on their website and the, the, the particle accelerator as they've drawn it as like, you know, maybe you know, five, five, seven, nan- seven meters in, uh, in diameter. So it's, it's not like a super huge one. Exactly. And, uh, I, I, the, the issue that you bring up with energy efficiency is the more interesting one because particle accelerators always take up a lot of energy. And the problem is if you want to say, you know, we're going to have a continuous power source, your particle accelerator is the single point of failure here, because if you can't reliably keep that running or powering that, you know, you, you stop the nuclear reactor from working. So uh, first of all, you need huge amounts of power and energy to keep the particle accelerator running and it has to be uh, foolproof, you know? So you have to ensure that there is no shortage or stoppage, um, which I think is going to be the more difficult part with this, which is why I think it's going to be tough. And uh, this concept, I don't think has been tried before commercially, of course. So God knows what challenges we will face with, you know, regulations and if regulators can even understand how this thing works and if they can you know give design licenses and safety parameters and defining all of that so that's going to be a a big hurdle also yeah that's a good point like one of the things that you know nuclear reactors do so well is their capacity factor is like 90 percent, right which is way better than even coal plants right uh let alone intermittent renewables which obviously have a very low capacity factor by default um so taking a nuclear and saying, yeah, what if the capacity factor was like 60% because some amount of the time or, you know, this, this, we need this pretty complex piece of equipment to be working and doesn't necessarily have a hundred percent uptime, right? Yeah. With, uh, so when we did our economic analysis for nuclear reactors in our recent report, uh, uh, we did see that, you know, 
decreasing capacity factor can have a huge impact on your lcoe and your levelized costs because the more the moment you go from let's say 85% capacity factor to 65% capacity factor your lcoe um rise if you would call it that would be like by 30% so your electricity becomes 1.3 times more expensive and that's just with existing technologies so i'm not sure how it would work with this one is the uptime that much of i mean it, it probably will be to, at first because just because it's a new technology but I, I don't know i mean a particle accelerator is a complicated piece of equipment but we've also been running particle accelerators for you know 75 80 years now um yeah but have we been running them continuously right like that's like running a piece of scientific equipment to me is very different than running a particle accelerator as a part of an energy generating system. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I think I would imagine like the, the, I mean, you know, with, with something like, uh, uh, I'm blanking. What's the giant, the giant one, the large Hadron the Collider or whatever, right? Like the, those sort of the things. One at like, CERN, yeah, right? yeah. The one at CERN, like, yeah, they'll, they'll like run it for like 10 minutes and then it's down for six months or something, you know, they can, they can only fire it up every, every, every several months. Right. Whenever they need to alter the timeline of, uh, you know, human, human events. Right? And, and it's interesting you bring up CERN because this uh, project was actually inspired by the CERN particle accelerator. So I think one of the founders was, has worked with the CERN team before, and he's the one who came up with this concept in 2019. It's definitely further out than a lot of the other sort of alternate nuclear concepts. I would think, um, though, Maybe maybe it's it's more more realistic uh, or nearer term than 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 the fusion concepts would be, which we we also talk about here. So yeah, it's an interesting approach to keep in mind. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. Uh, for this episode, we have Claire Weiler joining us from Fermata Energy. For those who are unfamiliar with Formata Energy, they are a V2X, so vehicle to anything uh, solution provider. And this anything can be vehicle to grid, vehicle to building, vehicle to home. Uh, so anything related to bi-directional charging capabilities, etc. So Claire, welcome on the show. Nice to meet you. Uh, so why don't you go ahead and introduce uh, Formata Energy for us first? Yeah, sure. Thank you very much uh, for the for the invitation on your show. Um, so Fermata Energy is a software platform uh, that also comes with um, charging hardware uh, that delivers integrated vehicle to everything solutions. So as you just said, um, Karthik, basically we turn electric cars while they're parked into mini uh, battery storage assets. Um, through software mainly, but um, also hardware technology. Um, so we're a really technology uh, solutions provider in that space. Uh, one thing that I noticed while we did reach out to you was that, you know, since your time at the University of Cambridge, you have worked in V2G, EV charging. Um, and, you know, I think this was at a time when EVs and V2G was not really, uh, you know, the thing to think about when it comes to, you know, electrification. So I'm I'm curious to know about your innovation journey. What's it been like, you know, you know, from University of Cambridge all the way to where you are at this point? Yeah, well, I have to say I feel very fortunate on a daily basis that I'm actually working directly in the field um, that of of my academic studies in in the past, and working now with a company that's actually like turning uh, vehicle to grid and EVs um, into a reality. And so where this kind of started for me 
was I started very broad, actually, in undergraduate studies focusing on environmental science in general. So realizing it occurred to me that climate change would be one of the major issues um, for, for the next century. And from uh, the environment, undergrad studies, I kind of focused in in energy science and technology, and that kind of brought me to the world of renewable energy. And there was this one innovation, electric vehicles, uh, that got me particularly interested around that time, and especially the questions of how can electric vehicles uh, be better integrated in energy systems? And what are the business models that are going to make it possible uh, for this technology to come to market and to be widely adopted? And you're right, at the time, 2010 or so, when I did my master's thesis in, in Palo Alto at EPRI on, on grid impacts of electric cars, there was still a big question mark, open question, as to whether electric cars would sort of take up as, as an industry. And so that's how sort of I got interested in business model innovation and the new business models. And so I started thinking about these questions around vehicle to grid, how to lower the cost of ownership uh, of electric cars, and how to reduce the barriers to consumer adoption of electric cars quite early on. Um, yeah, and then started working in a related space in renewable energy investments, um, but sort of was scouting out for companies, especially startup companies that were active in e-mobility and active specifically in the kind of integration of electric cars in the energy system and came uh, eventually landed uh, at Fermata. So I'm curious because, you know, you described Fermata as kind of a vehicle to anything uh, platform. And one of the, the big questions for me as we think about this space is, where is that initial application really likely to you know, spread? And where is this likely to be common? Because there's a lot of vehicles on the road today. Most of them are not, as far as I'm aware, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but most are not doing bi-directional charging. Um, so where do you see the, the sort of the scale up, the initial scale up happening in, in vehicle to X? You know, is it more decentralized in homes or more large scale in grids? And, and how do you see that playing out? That is a great question and really... It's yeah. a big question. <laughs> Great question and kind of very core to a company like ours's strategy um, in, in the market. And so the way we're approaching it at Fermata is starting in the commercial, commercial segment for vehicles. So fleet vehicles, um, that can be light duty, but it can also be medium and heavy duty uh, vehicles like school buses or, or trucks. Why? Because business owners have the mindset of focusing on total cost of ownership and really enjoy the aspect of this of our application, which is that we're earning additional revenue and we're demonstrating this across sites in the US today, um, earning thousands of dollars from electric vehicles while they're parked for these fleet operators. And so asset owners who are looking to kind of maximize their asset returns um, are adopting kind of for economic reasons at this stage. But we do see the mass market, to come a little bit back to, to your question, in the residential uh, residential passenger car market. 
And that's the majority of vehicles uh, for private tra for transportation are in that segment. And we are in the middle of preparing a solution um, with partners. So will be announced hopefully um, in the next few weeks or months um, for, for the residential market. And that's where I think in the home, when people buy a car and decide, hey, I want to do vehicle to home, I want to use my car to power up uh, my own house, um, when there's a grid outage, or maybe to maximize the benefits I get from my solar panels. Um, that's where I think that the mass market is going to be for, for this technology. On, on that point, I'm, I'm curious about the industrial or the more fleet applications, because it seems like there's a tension there. You know, fleet operators, they want to typically be maximizing the usage of their fleets, right? And time spent not using them is... Uh, typically lost time, right? This is one of the big issues when you think about electric trucking. And one of the big complaints against electric trucking is, oh, it's going to have this long charging time, downtime, you know, you won't be able to drive the trucks as much. So is there, you know, for these fleet operators, is that a, a concern or are these, you know, are there constraints uh, where they sort of naturally have time that they're not charging the vehicles or sort of, you know, not uh, using them as well or is there that flexibility in the system? Yeah, it definitely depends on the usage profiles of the different fleets. And vehicle to grid makes sense where there's some flexibility in that time uh, that the vehicle is being used. So as long as vehicles are parked for longer than they need to charge, there's a great potential to do vehicle to grid. And that means um, fleets like of vehicles like school buses for example, are a great use case because there's very specific routes they do in the morning, um, they'll do in the afternoon to, to pick up the kids from school. And then the rest of the day, uh, the rest of the hours of the day and all summer, by, by the way, sometimes when, when there's school breaks, these vehicles are parked and can be used as great assets. And we see other, um, other specific use cases for light duty fleets. In a lot of cases, uh, there's service vehicles or municipality-owned vehicles or utility-owned vehicles that are basically parked at the end of the working day and stay on site at a depot, for example, or wherever they are at, a, at an office site, and they'll stay parked uh, from kind of end of the afternoon until early morning. And that vehicle is actually a resource for the grid that can be used for about 12 hours a day. So that's also a great application. Car sharing. Car sharing is a great combined usage where whenever the vehicle is not being driven, like booked by, by car share users um, going on trips, it can be actually making money in the meantime, uh, just while it's connected uh, to, to the system. One of the things that also struck me while having this discussion, of course, is, uh, you know, it seems that with vehicle to grid, it's very easy when you can aggregate vehicles at a spot. Uh, you know, so because you you know you have your patterns, you have a, a cadence that you can you know stick to. That makes it very easy to monitor and manage the assets. Uh, but when it comes to vehicle to home, right? And I guess uh, you may already know what I'm going to ask. But uh, when when it comes to vehicle to home, it's sort of like trying to dictate free will. Because if I have an EV, I want to, you know, go to a store whenever I want. I want to go, you know, to the park whenever I want and I want to use my car, right? So it becomes really difficult to sort of, let's say, 
load manage or, or, or create that demand flexibility when it comes to vehicle to home. And you also said, right, what drew you to this field was the business model side. So how do you see business models sort of impacting vehicle to home specifically and individual consumers? Because I see that as maybe the next step after fleet. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, one of the key premises that our service is based on is that users are free to drive their cars whenever they want to. Um, There's no restrictions. Absolutely. As a car owner, you can't have your freedom to use your car whenever you want restricted. So it's really on our service to manage that variability and a bit of that randomness in when a user drives to the shop and when another user comes back. And so that's really embedded within our solution. We have multiple tools uh, to address that problem, but one of them is our AI-based algorithms that are basically forecasting when cars are going to be in and out and making these predictions of the capacity that we as a company have to work with across all of the residential sites um, to present that capacity as a whole to the utility markets and utility programs. So it's really all about forecasting probabilities of people plugging in, plugging out at different times. Um, We are also developing a vehicle um, telematics integration solution, which helps us when even fleets sometimes have uh, pretty sporadic uh, duty cycles and usage patterns. And uh, yeah, and so that's one way that we have of sort of getting data on their routes and being much better at forecasting granularly and especially not getting in the way of our customers' usage of their vehicle, just working in the background with what they can have to have to offer from their vehicles. What do you see as driving this more consumer-oriented adoption? Is it something where this is going to be like a visible thing to them that they're going to kind of opt into? It's like, hey, like this is a service you can earn revenue or have these advantages. Or do you think this is something that's going to be a bit more passive, like all OEM cars of brand X are just sold with this type of thing in? The instructions are plug your car in when you're not using it and like it sort of is invisible-ish to the consumer. How do you think that market's going to develop? Yeah, that's a great question. It depends a little bit on the role that the car manufacturers want to play in the long-term uh, product, let's say. I think we will see manufacturers um, offering the option, like, do you want your vehicle to have that option enabled for bidirectional charging or not? Uh, probably just like any other options that you can buy with a, with the car that comes with it. And the consumer then purchases the charger that goes along with the with the bidirectional to make it work. And in terms of why people want to, to buy this, it might be partly for energy savings um, to participate in some of the utility programs that are available. But we also really think it's for people to take control of their home energy consumption and to power their home, basically, when the grid lets them lets them down um, and during outages. So we're seeing this as an alternative buy uh, to generators, for example, in in the home. I guess how widespread do you expect that 
to be and and are you looking for like a regulatory push here because most homes don't necessarily have a generator but presumably we're going to shift to evs on a much broader scale right um so there's kind of a mismatch there or you know that type of like i don't want to say like prepper or like there's a sort of type of person who's like very concerned about being off grid or maybe not even being off grid but having that level of resiliency even in massachusetts where there's a lot of rooftop solar um you don't see as much of that that kind of grid resiliency or home resiliency like driver at least in my experience so i'm curious as to you know as we scale up evs do you expect that this is something that will ultimately become standard and just or or is this something where there will be part of home ownership or part of ev ownership will be sort of you're going to have to be more aware of this type of thing yeah i absolutely think that this technology needs to become mainstream um to have like there's more storage embedded in electric vehicles on the road today in the us than in all utility scale grid storage so that capacity just needs to be unlocked somehow uh for the utility so there is a regulatory push um, from from the energy market side. Why are cars not coming out, though, today with this capability already? Um, I think that's something that we are working very hard on a day-to-day basis to um, to work with car manufacturers and get them to, to, to produce the cars with the right technology, um, to understand the business case. But it's the reality of, of where they're at is there's more and more electric car models but it's still not the majority of cars in the market. So we're still a little bit early, even in the EV market. And car manufacturers are just figuring out their strategies around mass market electric vehicles. So they're busy producing those with standardization um, for the general market, for public charging, um, communication standards with, with charging. And so there's a bit of a shift that's required for V2G in the vehicle manufacturer not just selling a car um, up front and then sort of leaving it up to the to the after sales network for all the service and maintenance. But in potentially V2G potentially means that OEMs retain a stake and recurring revenue potential um, and recurring customer service and engagement with those customers once the vehicle has been purchased. But that's a huge shift in the mindset and in the business models again of OEMs. So we're seeing that this mass market is in preparation in all of our sort of behind the scenes industry conversations, partnerships that we're building um, across the, the OEM industry and across the charging industry. Um, but they're preparing things. Um, they're, they're getting prepared um, basically for uh, for for the mass market launch, and they can't afford to get it wrong because they have their reputations on the line. So they like to make things absolutely perfect and watertight uh, before releasing products to market. So we know a ton of OEMs that have announced new vehicle to grid uh, compatible models. So that includes Volvo, for example. That includes Stellantis, um, Renault. And a big one that we've been working with for a very long time has been Nissan. And Nissan really has figured this out on vehicle to grid from the very beginning. And 
that's why we have been sort of demonstrating everything we could with them for the last 10 years or so um, in, in the US. But other car manufacturers are taking an interest and catching up on it and, um, and also preparing. And I think we will see many, many more bidirectional vehicles uh, released in the market in uh, a year, within a year or two. And that will really kind of kickstart the, the mass market for that. Because once some cars come with it, then other car manufacturers have to offer it as well. It's just otherwise you're no longer competitive. When it comes to, you know, Anthony was talking about how Massachusetts has a lot of rooftop solar. In, in California, you have a lot of rooftop solar. And, and we generally see when people add a lot of rooftop solar, they add a lot of stationary battery storage behind the meter with that uh, so that they improve their energy efficiency and their grid, uh, you know, resiliency from the grid. And when you couple this with the fact that if you have a vehicle with bidirectional charging capabilities, you're still cycling it a lot more because whenever it is stationary, it is still running the battery, right? So if you think about cycle life overall, it goes down compared to having it stationary and and not charging the grid. Do you see that as being one of the reasons why automakers have sort of hesitated to go to V2G as a standard solution? Or are there other factors at play? Um, I think the battery cycling issue uh, might be one. The OEMs are still sort of collecting data and having research on, but all of the early um, deployments of V2G have shown that actually battery degradation caused from V2G cycling, even with very intensive V2G activity that's earning a lot of revenues from various markets, is actually very, very small compared to other um, factors of battery degradation. So calendar aging, which is just the passing of time, is basically the biggest factor of, uh, of battery degradation. And then if you look, actually, there's some, um, if, yeah, someone who has the opportunity to see um, a vehicle, the power flows uh, from uh, a vehicle's battery, during driving, those power flows are orders of magnitude higher than what we're talking about when we're talking about charging and discharging the vehicle while it's parked. So that is almost like a gentle massage for, for the battery you, you could think of because the C rates are very, very low. Um, generally, you won't install a ch charger that's, you know, if it's in a home, that's much more than a 0.3 or a 0.5 C rate. But the C rates that they get well, when, when for propulsion, when a vehicle needs to, to drive and kind of carry that huge mass forward on, on the road is much, much higher. So actually V2G degradation and we're uh, working you know, to collect more and more data about this. And uh, there's a bunch of research that has come out uh, re pretty recently suggesting that V2G actually doesn't have uh, a big impact, even though there is additional cycling um, for charging, discharging, uh, earning economic revenues from grid opportunities, um, that the, yeah, the, the cycling effect is, uh, has very minimal negative impact on the battery life and we can actually manage battery health uh, to help improve uh, the battery life compared to what a user, an uninformed user might do with their battery. One, one last question. And, you know, as we kind of, or maybe one last more serious question as we kind of finish up here, you know, we've talked a lot about the, the auto OEMs, their incentives, and even with charging, there was a pretty long period of 
auto OEMs trying to develop proprietary standards and then, you know, sort of reluctantly moving towards a, a unified standard now, it seems like in the face of both some regulatory pressure and also some, you know, some things winning in the market a bit more. How do you see that developing in this space? Do you think that maybe, you know, you'll have the same long period of OEMs each trying to to win? Or do you think because the charging is already becoming increasingly standardized, we can move more quickly towards the standard here? But how do you see that developing? And what are the incentives at play, you know, from your perspective there? Yeah, the question of standards for bidirectional charging is just not resolved yet. Um, so there has been the Chatamu standard, the one developed by Nissan or implemented by Nissan and the Japanese car makers, uh, was the one that can do V2G um, naturally. Um, and that's why all of those cars were, were V2G compatible from, from the start. Um, and then the kind of European auto industry uh, and North American as well sort of decided they didn't want to apply that standard for, for EV charging and developed their alternative, so the combined charge standard, CCS. And that one is having difficulties, I would say, taking hold um, because the version of, um, of the underlying ISO communication standard that could do bidirectional or has been designed basically to, to do bidirectional is quite complex. And so a lot of the OEMs are actually still um, fighting against it, not really wanting to, to implement it. And that is completely, I'd say, yeah, one of the reasons that's holding vehicle to grids uh, prime time uh, back a little bit at the moment. So it's not it's not a given. A lot of people said Chatamo standard is dead. It's being replaced by CCS 15-20. But actually, I, our view, I think, from some of our people internally at, at Fermat Energy is that this standards battle is kind of not, not over and not decided yet. And there still is room for a better solution to, to come to, to market. So maybe we'll see that coming from China. Maybe it will be some adapted version of the CCS standard. Um, but there, there definitely needs to be a standard that comes uh, quickly quickly enough to make this sort of mass market and work sort of interoperably across chargers and EV models. Last question. Uh, I think we, we really appreciate you coming on, Claire, and, and chatting with us. I, I've learned a lot. What are you driving? That's the that's the big question. Do you have an EV? Are you driving an EV? Are you doing vehicle to grid yourself? Have you have you sort of uh, are you practicing practicing what you <laughs> preach here? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, it's a Tesla Model Three, and I did try to get a contract with the utility to make it participate in uh, in some of these demand response programs over here in London. Now the, I charge on public chargers because I live in a in an apartment, and so I don't have a dedicated sort of garage or, or charge point. And they said I can't do it. Uh, because I use public chargers to, to do it. But um, absolutely, if I if I could monetize uh, my EV, my why not? You know, and help the grid at the same time. I think that's a that's a winning proposition for, for all of us. And frankly, I cannot wait for the day that Tesla announces uh, bi-directional compatibility of their cars. And from some insider friends, it sounds like they're imminently going to do it. 
but then who knows? <laughs> you never know. Elon Musk, we know you listen to this <laughs> podcast. Um, Claire, Claire says, get on it. We expect your email within within the hour. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right. Well, Claire, thanks so much for coming on. We really appreciate your time and uh, having this great conversation. If Elon does any of that stuff, we'll we'll be sure to invite you back on to get you. Okay. Okay. Definitely. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining. <laughs> thank you both. It was a great time. All right. We'll leave it there. If you want to support this podcast, you can follow us on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts. You can also join us at our upcoming forum series. We're really excited. Um, These are, I think, all live now. We have forums in Houston in actually pretty soon in March. We have March 5th, March 5th, Brussels um, and Boston. And then we're going to be doing one in Chicago, but I don't think we've we've finalized the date yet. So, you know, we're we're delighted to to see you all there. Yeah, come out. They'll be good. Check them out. LuxResearchInc.com. They're all up there. www.luxresearchinc.com slash forums slash forums. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just type that into your web browser.